space calling. You're listening to Wild Weasel, a podcast about wargaming news, wargaming ideas, and wargaming people. I'm Bruce Garrick, your host and electronic warfare technician. Welcome to Wild Weasel number nine. Or if you've listened before, then welcome back. I'm glad to report that I've been able to do some gaming in Portland and want to specifically call out TC from the Tattered Board podcast, who's a great guy to game with, even though I was unable to make two of the three evenings we made plans for. That's the problem with trying to do things after work when you have my job. Uh, but the time I did have a weekday off, we played an excellent game of Troys. Uh, that was my first Euro in several months, I think. Uh, also, please check out his podcast called The Tattered Board on iTunes and follow him at, at Tattered Board. Also, my friend Evan and I got together to play some Enemy Action Ardennes in two-player, uh, which was fantastic, as well as Command and Colors Napoleonics for a quick afternoon's Wellington versus Messena. And we even did a one-day session of Kim Kanger's Dien Bien Phu, The Final Gamble, which I think got us through turn five. So that's a promising start to my PDX experience. I also had the rare but recurrent pleasure of hosting the host of Three Moves Ahead, uh, the podcast, Rob Zachney, for a weekend, and we played an epic game of Churchill uh, with Evan, and you can hear all about that on a special edition of Three Moves Ahead, which you'll be able to find a link to on the Wild Weasel episode page. Uh, Mark Herman even offered his commentary on Board Game Geek. But now, the news. So, what's your favorite quagmire? Mine is probably the quagmire card in Twilight Struggle, but my second favorite would probably be Napoleon's quagmire. That's a game from Operational Studies Group about the French 1809 campaign in Spain. For some reason, this is part two, not part one. Part one isn't out yet, so there's that. Uh, you've got Medellin, Talavera, Almonacid, and Ocaña. It's $98 from napoleongames.com, which is uh, $20 more than the pre-order price, but still 10% off. And you can uh, pre-order 1813 colon Napoleon's Resurgence, period, The War of Liberation, Part 1, colon, The Spring Campaign. Yeah, that's a mouthful. And it's Lutzen, Bautzen, and Lukau. Uh, You can get that for $76, which is uh, basically 30% off. Uh, but the publication date on that is almost a year out. That's going to be February 2018. Uh, but knowing OSG's uh, catalog, I'm pretty sure it's going to be good. Now, Compass Games has nine years, colon, War of the Grand Alliance, 1688 to 1697. Now, that's a companion to No Peace Without Spain, but uh, it's a standalone game as well. So you can play that or you can play the two combined for uh, a very big one. Uh, right now, that's available for $50 plus shipping. 
um, absolute victory from Compass Games, which I mentioned last time, is shipping as well, and that's the whole of World War II global scale. Uh, you can find those at compassgames.com. Now, there's a company I haven't mentioned before, which now appears to have a few games under its belt. Uh, it's called Hollandspiel, although I think that's because Mary Holland Russell's last name has Holland in it, not because the company is actually in Holland, which is nice because, you know, shipping costs. <clears throat> Uh, according to their webpage, Mary worked for Mark Walker's company uh, until striking out on her own, and her partner is her husband, Tom Russell, uh, who has some of his own designs in their catalog, uh, one of which is uh, the Grunwald Swords, which is about the Battle of Grunwald, or uh, First Tannenberg, uh, depending on whether you're Polish or not. Uh, but the thing that caught my eye this time is called Teutons! Exclamation point, assaults on the West, comma, 1870-1940. Uh, and, and the reason it caught my eye, it's designed by Lou Coatney, uh, who, if you go way back in the hobby, will be familiar to you as the guy who used to send in all those Stalingrad variants to the general back in the 1970s. Um, he also designed his own pretty good Eastern Front game called Sturm nach Osten, which I still have here somewhere, I believe. Uh, anyway, uh, Teutons is a combination of three of Lou's previous games. Lou uh, had uh, his games on his website for print and play. Uh, I think they were for free. Now, um, those games cover the campaigns of 1870, 1914, and 1940, as you would expect. Um, and it also comes in a print-and-play version, but there's a $40 version, which is a full-printed game. Uh, and then there's a $12 version, which is uh, a download of the PDF, and you can print it yourself. Um, and that seems to be the case with most of their games, uh, which is a, a nice option, I think, if you want to see what their game, uh, whether or not it's for you. Um, they also have a game called The Shelled Campaign by a designer who has done some stuff that I really like, namely Brian Train, uh, who most people will know as the designer of A Distant Plane. Uh, the Shelled Campaign is from 2012 and I think is now being republished here. Uh, Hollandspiel also published a game that is not a war game, but it's on an interesting topic and by a designer who I think is really up and coming, uh, namely Cole Wehrle, who did Pax Pamir, also not a war game, uh, but is very good. Uh, his latest is uh, An Infamous Traffic, which is a multiplayer game about the Opium Wars. So I guess it's kind of a war game, linguistically anyway. Uh, that can all be found at hollandspiele.com, and if you can't spell that, there will be a link to it on this podcast page. Uh, they do have some interesting titles, including Blood in the Fog, about the Battle of Inkerman in the Crimean War, and Plan 1919, which is a World War I speculative history game. So, over at Flying Pig Games, uh, Mark has everything on sale, it seems, including Old School Tactical and its expansions. Um, now, I've been curious about the system, so I went ahead and bought the base game plus the Stalingrad expansion, and uh, I'll let you know what I think once I get a chance to play it. If you want your own copy, go to flyingpiggames.com. Now, White Dog Games uh, is a company I've mentioned before. They have a lot of solitaire games, but they also have a new Strategic Pacific War game designed by Steve Pohl. Uh, I haven't played it, uh, but it's listed as having 208 counters, a 22-inch by 17-inch map, and uh, that's eight, two eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper, and 40 random event cards. Oh, and what's the game called? <laughs> it has the very prosaic title of War in the Pacific, 1941 to 1945. Uh, not sure. Can't decide whether I hate that name or respect it for its... Vanillinous. 
It costs $48, and that includes shipping in the United States. Uh, it's $60 with shipping included internationally. Uh, and that's at whitedoggames.com. Uh, they also have a game in development called Even Our Honor, which is about the Battle of Caporetto, uh, and that interests me because that's the first subject I ever tried to design a historical war game about. Uh, I think I mentioned this before. I was uh, probably about 14. Um, my biggest problem was finding hex paper, and then everything else. I really had no idea how to research and design a game at that time. Uh, so I'm going to be waiting for this 10-turn core-level design uh, by Bob Goddard. Uh, let's see, at High Flying Dice Games, Paul Rohrbaugh has a new game called Lightning and Steel. Uh, that's about a battle from the 1939 Polish campaign. That's at hfdgames.com. Uh, and then there's GMT Games. Well, if you're following GMT Games, you already know uh, from their latest update back at the end of February that the next coin title is called Gandhi, colon, the Decolonization of British India, comma, 1917 to 1947. Uh, this one is being designed by Bruce Mansfield and already has a lot of chatter uh, going on about it due to the introduction of a nonviolent Gandhi faction. Uh, you can find playtest images of the map and other things uh, about the game on the GMT website. Uh, also, the Here I Stand reprint is going to turn into a full-blown anniversary edition uh, because you can't have enough of those these days, offering uh, honoring 500 years uh, since Martin Luther's 95 Theses were published. And uh, Fields of Despair, the block game from World War I, is out, although I think I mentioned that last time. Uh, Hexasim also has a couple of games available through GMT, including the second game uh, in the Eagles of France Napoleonic series, covering Austerlitz. It's called Austerlitz 1805, Rising Eagles. Uh, I've been very impressed with every Hexasim product I've purchased, although I don't have Waterloo 1815, Fallen Eagles, which is the game prior to this one in the series. Worthington Games has a Kickstarter for a game called Mars Wars, which I mention only because it has scenarios for the U.S. fighting China on Mars. Uh, remember that game Moonbase Clavius from Task Force Games where the U.S. fought the Soviets on the moon? Well, now we moved on to an actual planet, and our foes are now the Chinese. I think there are scenarios where we join forces with the Chinese to fight some aliens. I don't know if that's a spoiler. Um, the Kickstarter runs through March 27th, and you can find a link to that on the podcast page. Now, Harold Buchanan, who is my guest in the next segment of this podcast, alerted me to a Kickstarter by Alex Bogosi, who is the designer of Divided Republic, a game about the election of 1860. Uh, now Alex has a Kickstarter for his game Anaconda, about the American Civil War at sea. Um, this one doesn't look like it's going to make its goal without help, so head over to the Kickstarter page uh, via the link on this podcast to see whether or not it's for you. Uh, the Kickstarter ends on Saturday, March 18th. Uh, one Small Step is publishing the third edition of Phil Eklund's High Frontier, which is not a war game. Uh, if you know what that is and want to get in on it, the pre-order price is still good as of March 13th. Um, if you don't, well, you may not want to. It's not a war game. As for other stuff from One Small Step, they just sent out an update announcing two new games for pre-order. One is a game by Brian Train called Tupamaru, about an insurgency in the late 60s, early 70s in Uruguay, which is set in the capital, Montevideo. Uh, this actually isn't Brian's first South American insurgency game, uh, because he did Shining Path a while back about the insurgency in Peru. Um, and from the description, this game, the Tupamaru, seems to be 
using a different system than Brian's previous insurgency games, like Green Beret in Algeria, um, because it's set solely in Montevideo, just one city. So uh, as the description reads, and I'll quote, um, the map is a non-representational map of attitudes of the people of the city of Montevideo with an abstract troop and timescale, end quote. Uh, well, Brian is a proven designer with a good track record, um, and I did play test his Colonial Twilight. I think he is a very, uh, good, very good at doing um, asymmetric warfare, so I'll be buying this right away. Um, the other newly announced game from them is kind of odd, but intriguing. Um, it's designed by Joseph Miranda, and it's called Ark of the Kaiser's Last Raider. And it's odd because apparently you're a writer trying to finish a pulp novel about a World War I German high seas raider. Uh, I guess like the Emden or something. Um, it's a solitaire game, and the playing time is listed at two to four hours. Hmm. Anyway, that's available as a pre-order as well. And uh, in that same update, they also note that Thai Bombos Guderian's War and Nippon Nukes and Nationalists, that's two different games there, are shipping to pre-orders this week. All of that is from One Small Step Games. Um, I got a very interesting email the other day about The Streets of Stalingrad. Now, this is a game uh, that came out back in 1979, uh, then was broken up uh, into two separate games by Nova Game Designs uh, for a second edition uh, a few years later. Those were Fire on the Volga and Battle for the Factories. And then there was a third edition in 2003, a very nice one by L2 Design Group, which was designer Dana Lombardi's company. Now... It looks like there will be a fourth edition to coincide with the 75th anniversary of the battle. Or, at least, that's when the Kickstarter will be. Um, in the meantime, you can see what's cooking at sos-4.com. Now, according to the email, there are actually going to be two Kickstarters. Uh, there's going to be a preliminary Kickstarter with playtest kits uh, starting in May. Um, but then the actual Kickstarter is not going to be until September. Um, so have you ever heard of people paying to be playtesters for a board game? Uh, I find that kind of odd. Uh, it looks like this pre-Kickstarter Kickstarter, uh, will have special discounts and whatnot as incentives. So I think it's where they're going with that. But I also find it strange that after you've, um, you know, learn that fact, it says, and I quote, final playtesting and print ready files will be completed over the next several months. That's their quote. But I mean, if this depends on the success of a pre-Kickstarter, how can they be so sure it'll be ready? I mean, what if they don't get the playtesters they need? Uh, and if they know they can get the playtesting done anyway, then why have a pre-Kickstarter Kickstarter in the first place? Yeah, so many questions. Now, I can't help uh, but admit that I'm intrigued, though. Um, you know, the game is a monster. I've never even gotten close to attempting a, uh, a campaign game, except maybe setting it up or partially setting it up. But there are scenarios in that game that are uh, that are really good, and I think that they do the Battle of Stalingrad at that level um, very well. So uh, the, I saw some pictures on their webpage, and uh, they're showing how the size is bigger, um, which is nice from a counterplacement standpoint, but not as nice from a finding room to keep it set up standpoint. Anyway, I'll be see, interested to see how this uh, pans out. And uh, lastly, I wanted to say a special thank you to Daniel Berger, who's the designer of Hands in the Sea, which I mentioned last time as a game I didn't get a chance to buy um, because I missed the Kickstarter and then they sold out of it. 
Um, well, Daniel heard that, and he sent me an autographed copy, uh, for which I'm very grateful. Thank you, Daniel. That was uh, really, really nice of you. Um, I'll have a play report soon, as I'm going to play it this weekend. And that's the news. So today, in keeping with our new policy of 100% West Coast content, I have designer Harold Buchanan of Liberty or Death. Harold, welcome to the show. Hello, Bruce. So, um, Harold, I have played Liberty or Death several times. Uh, I like it a lot. Um, I should mention to the listeners that this is, uh, obviously I would have you on the show anyway, but uh, I made the egregious mistake of... um, listing the games in the coin series and just blew right through liberty or death just uh like it did like it didn't exist it was was fake news and uh and so i said that uh you know i as as a uh, as a makeup i would get you on the show but i would i would have you on the show anyway because i'm fascinated by liberty or death um so i guess i have i have three questions for you about liberty or death um regarding the coin system um, what, what about the coin system, uh, allowed you to make an American revolution game or what, what was it that you decided, well, gosh, I want to make an American revolution game, but I'm going to use coin because. Well, let me start Bruce by saying it did hurt my feelings, but I've uh-huh. started healing process. Okay. Yeah, there are. Well, I'm sure it's covered by your insurance. <clears throat> yes, it is. And I'm, I'm glad that you now recognize that mm-hmm. uh, even Volko can design a coin game. <laughs> or, or someone other than Volko can design yeah. a coin game. Okay. So, so yeah. yeah, there it is. So, so uh, in, in graduate school, um, I studied uh, economic game theory. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it doesn't apply to two-player games very much. But in multiplayer games... Um, it, it, it's quite literally the, the process of modeling the strategic interaction between more players than two mm-hmm. in a situation containing a set of rules and outcomes. And, and, and so when you bring three and four players into the mix, then the number of potential outcomes increase dramatically, even in a symmetrical game. Um, and, and I think, you know, because that was an economic area of study for me, I always wondered how it would apply to the games that we play. Okay. At the same time, while I was in graduate school, I lived within walking distance to the USS Constitution and to Breeds Hill slash Bunker Hill. Oh, wow. And so I, I was immersed in the Boston history. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that really is the American Revolution. If you walk around Boston, you feel like you're in the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. Many times, yeah, uh, for, for a host of reasons. But, but I, I, to to pull all that together, one of the questions I had, uh, and I was discussing this with a, a historian friend mm-hmm. about who are the different people that sat around the table during the American Revolution. It wasn't just George Washington and and King George, right? right. There were many people at that table, including different factions within the Patriots different factions within the British, uh, different factions within the Loyalists. And then you have 
you know, the arguably the second most powerful nation in the world. And I, I when um, Mark Guillaume Rete hears this, he's going to argue they were the first, but mm. but but the French, yeah, had a seat at the table, right? And and then you have the indigenous people that we'll call Indians because that was the term of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Spanish and, and so, so just, there are tons of people at the table and I respect the abstraction of using a two player game, but I always wanted to challenge myself to bring others to the table and see how the American revolution played out. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, where, where I started with all this was, was the frontier and, you know, the, the Indians, uh, and that's a huge generalization because they're different factions across the country what's now the country but but north america at the time mm-hmm. there there were factions all over the place and 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 but they had a common issue which was uh you know and they chose the french during the seven years war because the french were more about trappers and less about colonists right right and and then during the american revolution um they chose the british because the british and King George drew that proclamation of 1763 line and said everything west of that is indigenous people mm-hmm. and colonists should stay out. So that's why they selected the British for the most part. And I thought they have to be abstracted, right? And everything's abstracted. I'll say the word over and over, but yeah, everything's well, abstracted. These are games. The game is an abstraction, of course. Right, right. By, by its nature, if we really aren't fighting with muskets and, and tomahawks, it's right. an abstraction. So... Uh, I, I, I said to myself, this has to, they have to have a seat at the table. And frankly, if you read the histories, there was a frontier war going on for the Patriots at the same time as a war with the British and, and, you know, arguably even a civil war with the loyalists. Mm -hmm. So, so I said to myself, you have to pull in this other faction. You have to pull in the French significant impact. And we have a very romantic recollection of Rochambeau skipping around with Washington, and they were buddies, and they agreed on everything. But that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of examples in, in the history books, and I think plenty more that we haven't really even uncovered, of how these two factions would disagree with each other. Mm-hmm. So so, um, it, so I always wanted to, to create – you know, I don't know that I wanted to create, but I wanted to test the hypothesis that there were more, to the, more at the table than just – the Patriots and the British. And okay. so, so that's kind of where, you know, that's kind of where I ended up and I've been playing two player games on the American revolution my whole life. Enjoyed the heck out of them. Yep. 1776 was a big favorite. Mm-hmm. I think Washington's war is as good as it gets. Yes, I agree with you. Uh, and, and I love it. I think it's perfection. I think that's much, much of what Mark Herman does is perfection in my mind. But, um, but at the same time, um, it's also a simulation of the combat, right? And right. You, you play you play the game of go in the background. Yes. But, but it but it's a it's a simulation of the combat. So I also wanted to test other things: the political alignment, the economy, um, and then the the multiple factions. And so when I played Andy and Abyss for the first time three plus years ago, mm-hmm. this, this is it. Finally, mm-hmm. somebody's pulled in the complexity. And, and abstracted around it, but, yeah. but but pulled in the complexity of multiple factions at the table. Mm-hmm. There's an economics element to it. Mm-hmm. There is more than just combat. It's the the alignment of the various uh, uh, of, the, of the political or the, yeah the political elements. Um, and it was just a different 
a different take that allowed me to test what other factions at the table would be able to do. Interesting. So um, the uh, the fact that somebody came up with a multipolar game mechanic uh, sort of was, was a thing that you were just waiting for, basically. Uh, because it sounds like as soon as you saw it, you saw, oh, you thought, oh, I could make the American Revolution out of this. This is the thing that I was, I was looking for. Is that fair? It allowed me to, it allowed me to apply and, and quench my intellectual curiosity. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I never intended to design a game. Well, oh, really? Was, clearly, at the end, I did. But <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I told this story elsewhere, so yeah. I'll lay it out briefly. But yeah. when I started college and work, I stopped gaming. Mm-hmm. And then came back to it three years ago mm-hmm. as my kids went to college. Okay. So, so you know, I've I've been immersed in negotiation and 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 trading and mm-hmm. running a hedge fund my whole life. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, and but so only recently uh, have I been back at the games and I finally and I saw something that allowed me to quench my thirst around the American Revolution. I put together a four-player American Revolution game uh-huh. and just played it with my friends. Oh. So um, the map was horrific, the graphics were horrific, but we had fun. Yep. And I talked to Volko about it once, and and he introduced me to a bunch of people, and then suddenly GMT said they wanted it, and and that's how it all played out. Yes. My goal wasn't to design a game. My goal was to quench my intellectual curiosity about what uh, what a four what 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 the four factions at the table at the American Revolution would have thought and done. Okay. Well then. Then to sort of follow up with uh, my second question uh, would be, uh, what would that thing be that if you are going to to simulate, you know, whatever, simulate, game, abstract out, the American Revolution, what's the thing that you absolutely have to have um, that you, you feel like you couldn't do an American Revolution game or nobody should do an American Revolution game without having that aspect? Because it doesn't sound like multipolar would be the thing, since you say that you you have enjoyed and 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 like two player games like 1776 and Washington's War. Right. Yeah. As 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 military simulations, right? I mean, you you and I have have discussed the definition of a war game and how much I hate spending any time on that. Correct. I, because I would define what we do more as conflict simulation, mm-hmm. and 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 the historical theme I would say is very broad. So I I include a huge number of games in this, and so I don't feel like I don't want to. I don't want to spend any time parsing it. Right. So, but 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 if I had to parse it, <laughs> to answer your question, I'd uh-huh. say that, that that these other games are military simulations. Okay. And and for me, the history of the American Revolution is the history of the people and the alignment of the population. Okay. And and that's what Volko's model screams to you with, right? Mm-hmm. That. that that it's about the alignment of the population, and 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 so you don't just have to march and fight the other army, right? And that's where people have trouble with liberty or death. Was they play the patriots and they create an army and they march around and start fighting the British? That's not what happened, right? Right. It was it was more about control of the population and and aligning the population. And so you spend your time in those sorts of activities, mm-hmm. which is what happened during that you know eight year stretch mm-hmm. was that that was more the activity than fighting the British, right? Right. And, and, yeah. So, so, so that's to me that's that's the that's the one thing you need. Um, and then I would also suggest now that I've gone through the experiment that it's much more interesting. Mm-hmm. That there's a bunch of factions at the table, 
and we all have a common enemy, but we all have different interests. And that dynamic tension, you know, the, the dynamic tension between the Indians and the British or the dynamic t- tension between the French and the Patriots is, is, is what makes the game interesting. Right. And without it, I don't think I could have advanced the ball to something different. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, th- I mean, it's, it's, it's clear that we you know what you've taken advantage of and, and, and I don't think I'm going to look at the, uh, you know, the American Revolution as a conflict simulation, as you put it, the same way. I, you can't look at it the same way again, because when you um, when you talk about, and I, I, yeah, we had this, this discussion at one point where, yeah, we're both kind of like, w- why argue about what's a war game? I mean, I'm fine calling Twilight Struggle a war game. Um, you know, I, I did that on the first show, and people were like, oh my god, I can't believe you put uh, that in a list of best war games. It's not a war game. Like, whatever. It's not, it's not important. But, um, if if you are trying to really game the American Revolution and not just do a, um, you know, a military simulation, and I, I have to say that you know Washington's War does the, the the go part does does kind of include that political element, um, but yeah, if you're going to do a military simulation about the uh, about the American Revolution and, and and then want to really game it as the whole conflict, then you have to have um, all those other competing factions, and that's how I think what your game does. Um, does so well and kind of makes me feel like okay, uh, I'm not sure what to do about um, well, you know, what do you do next? I mean, next time I next time I see an American Revolution game, I'm going to think, oh yeah, but you know, Harold put all these other factions in, and they look how they interact, and uh, you know, I'm going to miss that. But but that leads me to my third and last question, which is, uh, you know, we were talking about how great uh, Coin is and what you know what Volko came up with and all these things that it does that no other system does. Well. What's the one thing about coin that you don't like, or that when you have when you have to design with coin, it's the thing that you think, ah, this is this is the part of the system that doesn't work so well for me, or for whatever reason, uh, wish you could improve. Right. Well, look, I, I, I'm I'm walking in the 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 footsteps of giants, right? Volko's work and mm-hmm. and he creating a system. I'm just kind of using it, and he's nice enough to let me use it, and mm-hmm. he was helpful, so. You know, I I hate to criticize. Okay, let's uh, run them down right now. Yeah, that's right. Well, so so here here are the things, and I've talked to Volko about it. And you can see it in my game. Mm-hmm. The 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 uh, the coup card, the propaganda card. When it comes up, it comes up, and it's telegraphed to the player. Mm-hmm. And and so you know, I've been in games where we spend an hour on the next faction trying to figure out what one thing that they can do to win. Yep. And then, then the next faction tries to figure out what the, the thing they can do to either prevent the other player from winning, or, and and it's all within the rules of the game. Of course, but it's no fun. Right. And and uh, you know it doesn't always happen that way, mm-hmm. but sometimes it does, and it it it, it drives me nuts. I think, uh, and so the one what the thing I did in my game is I just said, look, once it pops up, you do it. Yeah. Right. So once that winter quarters card comes up, you execute it. So, so that, so that it changes the anticipation to, I think it's coming, right? Winter mm-hmm. comes about this time, you know, starting to get cold. <laughs> right. You better do what we need to do. Right. Uh, as opposed to mechanically, boom, there it is. As I can see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there are things that I can do. So that, you know, that kind of, that, that's one of the things that I didn't like, but I also put the option in for the coin diehards or any of the, mm-hmm. anybody else that might like the old, the, the other system. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I I have a different view on these games. I you know many people will 
uh, and, and critics will often say this is wrong, this is broken, it should be this way. Mm-hmm. I view these more as uh, works of art as opposed to works of science. The, um, you know, the, the, this, this argument that uh, it has to be a certain way or it doesn't work, mm-hmm. you may not like it, right? You may see a piece of art that, right. you, just, that you don't like, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But, but when you look at and, – and I'm not arguing that my game's the Mona Lisa. I'm just saying when you look at Monet's What Are Lilies 44 or 43, mm-hmm. you can't say it has the wrong color of blue. Right. Right. Every one of the water lilies photo or pictures has a drawing paintings has a mm-hmm. has a, a different blue. Right. So you can't say it's wrong. It's just what he saw. Right. And the same is true for these games. That's what I see. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that anybody else has to agree and nobody else has to like it. But it's certainly not wrong. Yeah. Well, I, I, I absolutely. I mean, I think the thing that, that the, the test the test of all these games for me is when I sit down with a bunch of people because for me, you know, I'm I'm not much of a solo player. Um, I I completely understand why people play solo. I've mentioned this in the past, um, but for me, a lot of this hobby is about uh, enjoying the interaction with the people that I sit down to the table with. And you know, there are games that you know when I look at them, they may have some problems as games, but when I sit down with other people, they're just so enjoyable that I I overlook some things because. Uh, that's the experience that I'm getting. So, um, yeah. and, and I think one of the things about coin that's great is that it allows for people to sit down and have this very interactive, very um, sort of almost collaborative in a sense uh, experience of gaming, which uh, which is, as far as I'm concerned, one of the best possible ways you could spend an afternoon or evening or whatever. So, uh, so I'm definitely uh, you know really. Um, grateful or whatever word you want to use that that coin exists and i know that there are some people who don't like coin uh there are some people who um don't like the fact you know the one one person i remember talking to complained that uh well i don't like military uh simulations where where they have cubes right i want to i want to you know a counter with with values on it okay that's fine that's right it's completely and that's not wrong that's just what that person gets out of this uh, this endeavor that we all share, and if if that's the case, then they won't play coin. That's I mean, that's that's perfectly Agreed. fine. Agreed, and that's a perfect example of it's not wrong, but it's not to my taste. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Right? It, the 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 frustration I have is when I get the response that something's wrong, mm-hmm. because uh, you know the the Zen in life is that there are multiple correct answers to the same question. Right, and and so you know, and maybe and maybe not to two plus two, but mm-hmm. but. But to, to subjective questions, there are multiple correct answers. And, yes. you know, the sooner, the sooner you learn to accept that, the lower your blood pressure becomes. Yeah. Well, you know what's funny is I I, uh, I now, when, one day, not now, I guess it was, it was about a year ago or so, I was, I was looking through some old issues of The General and just reading the uh, letters to the editor. And uh, some of these people were just getting so irate about these things. And I just thought, gosh, you know, that these people, it, it's it's so... Life is way too short to put to invest that much vitriol in a in a letter right. to the to the editor of the magazine that, for the hobby that you enjoy. So, well, now it's you know now it's the internet. Now right? it's the internet. Yep, and now it's a forum. Game Geek and yep. yeah, that's, yeah. Absolutely. that's okay. We can you and I will just sit and watch and uh, and uh, be amused by the. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I talk about the Zen, but uh, and I have no problem with somebody not liking my game, but sure. Uh, you know, there was a recent post where a guy said he thought the rules were abysmal, oh. and 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 they're not, right? Yeah, they're, no. it's, it's it's a technical manual. Voco wrote it, right? 
they're they're extraordinary. Yeah, the the, the rules. There's one thing about the coin rules. Any coin game is that there's the, the rules are really good. Right, right. It, but but you know it depends on the measure, right? I mean, uh, I have a friend lives in the, lives in uh, outside Seattle, uh, O'Shane Balloon, and his mm-hmm. he's a Cornell mathematician. Now he's an attorney. Brilliant guy. Mm-hmm. And he and he pointed out to me that the, the measure of a technical manual is not how quickly you learn the game. Right. A technical manual, the measure is can several different people from several different perspectives read the same rule and come to the same conclusion. Ah, good point. And, and I think that coins written in that context. Yeah. So yeah. so abysmal is kind of a joke, and 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 and, 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 and you know I call him the notorious OSB, but yeah. he pointed that out to the gentleman on 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 uh, BGG. Yeah. At the same time. Um, we could do a better job teaching people the games. And, and so I think that, that, that may be an inherent area for opportunity, right? I mean, uh, really opportunities for improvement, perhaps I, I, the, the, uh, the, the ability to, to, to change player aids, to adjust to a different set of rules that is less technical manual and, and all the things that we love about the accuracy of that, but something that makes it easier for people to read and learn um, you think about, well, so I went to MIT for graduate school mm-hmm. and there they talk about, they don't talk about majors. They talk about course numbers. So I was course number 15, my friend's course number eight. And, and people don't realize that he's a physics major, but he and I both know, right? So inside right. our clan, we, we know, and we talk like that to keep people out of the clan. <laughs> right. And technical manuals are the same thing, right? So as long as we continue to write in technical manual, it makes in technical language it's it's harder for people that are new to the game, especially new to war games, to come into the clan. And and I want everybody to come in, right? And I, that's one of the real challenges, I think. I agree. I agree. I think that we do have an opacity to the hobby that uh, can sometimes be uh, challenging, but. Yes. We just need people, you know, we need, what we need is we need more game stores and more game days and more people who are good at teaching games. So. Yes. That's my, that's my solution to that. Well, Harold, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Uh, you will be featured on, uh, Wild Weasel, uh, coming to a, uh, to an internet near you. And, uh, thanks for the time. Uh, Bruce, much appreciated. And thank you for doing a, a frequent war game podcast. We all love it. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye bye. I've been talking a lot on this podcast and to people in person and on message boards and basically to anyone who will listen um, about how excited I am by the hobby's health these days. Incredible designs are being released all the time. There are a bunch of publishers. The community has a bunch of different venues for interaction. You know, there's Board Game Geek. There's Vastly, you can play games with people across the country or the world. There's this real connectedness to the hobby, I feel like. You know, people are really clued into what's going on, Twitter and everything. You can get a picture of something somebody's playing in Spain, and then, you know, you can tweet out what you're doing in the States. It's just, it's so neat. Um, And, of course, the physical component, the art standards have gone way up. I mean, it's just amazing to see how the hobby I thought was basically dying in the late 80s uh, has had such a resurgence, and I don't see any place that's going to stop. But there's one small part of wargaming that does seem to have passed away um, without people maybe even realizing it. And maybe that's because it was so small in the first place, um, but I do miss it. And that's the tactical air combat game. Now, I know what you're going to say. Bruce, Wing Leader just came out and has a sequel. Yeah, 
but that's not really what I'm talking about. Um, I'm talking about the individual aircraft dogfight game. And it came up because I pulled out a copy of Fox, Bat, and Phantom, uh, which is from 1973. And then I put it next to my copy of Rolling Thunder from Commando War Games, which is from 1979. SBI's Air War. Uh, and then Flight Leader, which was uh, designed by J.D. Webster for Avalon Hill back in 1986. And I was just comparing them. Uh, Air Superiority is another one from GDW from around the same time as Wing Leader, although I don't have a copy, of, or sorry, as Flight Leader. Um, but I don't have a copy of that one. And I was I was putting these together, you know, um, and I, I was just <clears throat> comparing them all. And I was looking, you see this very interesting trajectory, you know, from the origins of of uh, jet hex air combat um, in Foxbat and Phantom, then uh, to more complexity in, in Rolling Thunder, you know, adding these, um, you know, air-to-ground things that were because that was what the campaign was um, simulating to this, you know, super, you know, you'd say over-detailed. Uh, air war, um, where just everything was tracked, it was crazy, um, to once again the more streamlined um, flight leader, which I think it was a reaction to air war. Um, and it occurred to me that all of the subjects that uh, our games cover, you know, of, of all these different things, you know, land combat, um, various types, um, Air-to-air air combat is probably the most difficult to visually portray. You know, after all, you're dealing with a third dimension, um, as well as the aircraft attitudes. That means the relation of the aircraft to three separate axes. You know, you have the yaw, pitch, and the roll. So just out of the gate, you know, you have a problem showing the players exactly what's going on without cluttering up the display. Now, I, I do remember back at Origins in Detroit, 1983, uh, seeing the late, great S. Craig Taylor playing a Quinto's brand new game, Wings, uh, with some miniatures, uh, they were so beautifully painted on these long sticks, uh, these biplanes, and I'm thinking, wow, now that's how you do air combat. Um, but of course, it wasn't really practical to do that with each separate air combat game, uh, or really even one for me at the time, and uh, that became kind of an impossible standard that you uh, always imagined but you could never get to. I also remember playing SBI's Air War by Postal Mail in the early 1980s, and I how I kept thinking how happy I was that I wasn't doing it face-to-face -face because I could always check for rules errors before finishing the move, right? I was like, okay, is that legal? Is that legal? Oh, I just screwed that up. Okay, let's go back and fix this. Um, I was really an insoluble problem, I think, to put air combat, and especially, and this is really, I think, more about modern air combat, into a format that, you know, constant gamers are going to accept in terms of fidelity um, because they too much abstraction will drive a lot of people crazy, uh, yet be something you could really sit down and actually play uh, rather than, you know, sit down and fiddle with charts and counters. And, I mean, you really did need to always look up from the map to some kind of control sheet and back. And, uh, you know, the more planes you had, the more you had more, you know, the more control sheets you had and you had to look back and forth and yada yada. It just became crazy. And then suddenly, boom, the problem was solved. Um, but in another medium. Uh, because computers finally became powerful enough that you could basically play a flight simulator on your computer that mimicked a real cockpit and aircraft pretty well. Um, I remember not being interested in Octung Spitfire, which is actually I thought was a pretty darn good uh, World War II aircraft combat game. I wasn't really interested in that anymore when European Air War came out. I think that was like 1998 or so. I think it was the same year the Fal Falcon 4.0 came out. That's Maybe it was 97. But anyway, late 90s. And then here we are. Um, I still have Falcon 4.0 in the, its binder. Um, and so, you know, hobbyists could actually build themselves realistic cockpits. And, um, you know, some did. I, you know, I just stuck to a joystick throttle and rudder pedals. But still, I mean, what a difference between that 
and a board game. I mean, who wants to play a board game? You can be in an actual uh, F-16 cockpit and, uh, you know, have all the electronics and avionics, whatever. But I don't play flight simulators anymore. And I still play war games and air combat war games. So what happened? Well, I mean, in the first place, I, I play a lot fewer computer games in general, so that's part of it. That's not really what I'm talking about. Um, I'm not thrilled about hauling out extra hardware, like all the you know rudder pedals and stuff, on a very infrequent basis. But I'm still very interested in air combat. And what I found is that, like the rest of the hobby, air combat gaming has evolved. So, I mean, Lee Brimacombe Wood is like a one-man air combat idea factory, you know, with Night Fighter, Bomber Command, now the Wing Leader series, other stuff, um, which all look at either new situations or new ways of presenting old situations. Because I have to say, I would never have thought of presenting air combat in the lateral axis that, that is concentrating on a lateral distance and aircraft pitch uh, if you'd given me a hundred years to think about it. And Lee even designed a game that I think is the spiritual successor to Rolling Thunder, um, namely a game that's about a specific campaign that's more of a raid game uh, than a dogfight game, and that would be uh, Downtown. Uh, so, uh, and even, you know, World War I um, gets its own raid game with Bloody April, um, which achieves what the Richthofen's War Campaign game uh, held out so tantalizingly, but uh, never quite delivered on. And believe me, I played Richthofen's War obsessively a long time ago. Um, I loved the red ace counters, you know, and uh, I had tracked, you know, I tracked all my pilots and I would play against uh, a friend of mine and, and we would, you know, keep our aircraft rosters and, and it was really... Really, I think, uh, an interesting uh, role-playing game that we played, but it never quite, you know, the mechan- the underlying mechanics of Richthofen's War are actually broken, but I think. Um, but still, it's that kind of, it, it, it's that kind of thing that is the, the continuity, the, the, the campaign and the flow of, you know, the interconnectedness of the, of the battles that was important. Um, so maybe what I'm saying is that, you know, just like the hobby evolved out of cumbersome mechanics into some really neat streamlined and playable systems with things like card-driven games, coin, and, you know, other things, a lot of other designs, um, Air War games moved away from the nuts and bolts of flight to the more abstractable things, like raids and campaigns. So, again, designers found what board games did best and then moved in that direction. So uh, the air combat hobby, I guess, then didn't die. It just changed. Um, and probably I'd have to say for the better. Um, but, you know, I do still have a soft spot for the old cardboard dogfight. Um, it might be nostalgia, but I always remember it as being a lot of fun. And those wings planes, uh, you know, on tall sticks, man, so neat. And that's it for this time. Um... I don't really even know what I have in store for next time, although I uh, hopefully by tomorrow will have recorded the interview for that, and uh, maybe I'll just riff off of that. Plus, there'll be more game reports and um, definitely more rain. That's the thing that we have here in Portland is rain. So uh, while it rains, I'll record. Until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for more wargaming news, people, and views. This has been Wild Weasel number nine.